Hi, welcome to the Covenant Presbyterian Church podcast, a weekly broadcast of our Sunday sermon. Covenant Presbyterian Church is an open, affirming congregation, and we're so glad you found us. Our primary mission is to equip God's people to serve Christ in the world. In our weekly messages, we hope that you'll find inspiration, encouragement, and even challenge for your faith journey. Please listen with us now. Well, it's been a week since Easter, one week since the empty tomb, one week since the women told the disciples about the resurrection. You know, they were the first preachers. Sorry, Baptists. And those disciples are in the same place they were Easter night. They're in the same room behind the same locked doors, afraid of what's out there. Does that sound familiar? After a week of news, I've been wanting to stay behind the doors myself. So if the resurrection is such a big deal, such a life-changing event, why are those disciples still stuck in the same place? How has that empty tomb changed their lives? From all appearances, it doesn't look like Easter has made any difference at all to them. Which makes me wonder, one week after Easter, what has resurrection history done for us? What difference has the empty tomb made in our lives this past week? A week later, and you and I still find ourselves afraid sheltering in place, troubled by the world just outside our door, worried to death about our future. What is that all about, we who have seen resurrection? Geologists tell us that we are now celebrating Easter in a new geological era called the Anthropocene. Seems that we humans here now have made such a profound impact on the planet that we have become geologically significant. Jedediah Purdy, who is a professor of law at Duke, writes that in the last 500 years, we have made the world our anthill. The geological layers we are now laying down on the Earth's surface are marked by chemicals and industrial waste, the pollutions of our crops and the absences of the many species we have driven to extinction. Rising sea levels are now our doing. This is why from the Earth Sciences to the English departments, there's a veritable academic stampede to declare that we live in a new era the Anthropocene, the age of humans. And it's not a pretty picture because it's no longer a question of us stopping change or reversing damage. The challenge we now face is how to survive this irreversible toxification caused to our environment and how as human beings who now find ourselves beyond the point of no return might adapt to the inevitable widespread upheaval 
that is sure to come around the globe. The greatest challenge, though, is not how our Department of Defense should plan for resource wars or where we should put up sea walls or when we should evacuate towns and cities along the coastlines. The quick fix is beyond buying a Prius or signing a treaty or turning off the air conditioner. The biggest challenge you and I now face may be to our sense of what it now means to be a human being. We who once imagined ourselves as owners, managers of this planet, now see that our whole way of thinking that we were privileged above all other species and in control and could exploit the planet without consequences, well, we were wrong. And it's brought us to a dead end. We who thought our empires and our computers would save us now find ourselves on the precipice of extinction. We who dared to believe we could possess the land and do as we please with it have ignored the old words of Leviticus, the land is mine, says the Lord. With me, you are only aliens and tenants. Perhaps the biggest question we now face is this. What does my life mean in the face of death? We were forced to ask this question several years ago when we went to a worldwide pandemic. We didn't know where death would strike. We didn't like it because it left us uncomfortable. It left us not knowing. It left us uncertain. No matter how much money we had, no matter how youthfulness we had, no matter how gift we had, it didn't matter. Any of us could die. And it scared us to death. How do you make meaningful choices in the shadow of an inevitable end? How do we learn to die? Not just as individuals, but even as civilizations. You and I have seen enough history of our world to know that cultures and governments and countries come and go. Oh, I know, our, you're rebelling with me, and I understand that. Uh, our human psyche just we rebel against the idea of its ending at all. Historically, civilizations have marched blindly toward disaster because humans are wired to believe that tomorrow the sun's going to come out and we'll be okay today and it'll be much like today. We aren't good at contemplating our extinction. So I'm right with you. I understand. And so like the disciples we hunker down behind our locked doors. We're afraid of our endings. We're afraid of more violence. We're afraid of more upheaval. We're afraid of political and social unrest. We're afraid of immigrants and foreigners, and we're afraid of interrupted supply chains and downturns in the market. We're afraid of bombs that we build to keep us safe and secure from all alarms. We're afraid that one armed madman can bring down a whole house of cards that we live in. We are afraid, afraid, afraid. 
So here we are on the second Sunday of Easter gathered in this room behind closed doors, licking our wounds and reciting our fears. And then, and then, Jesus stands among us here in this room just as he stood before them that first Sunday after Easter and we hear his words peace be with you peace be with you you who have lost your world you who have grieved the death of civilization you who do not know where to turn peace to you Friends, this is not empty rhetoric on his part. This is the down-to-earth language of survival and even flourishing. And I chose that word on purpose. Flourishing despite the mountains shaking in the heart of the sea and the waters roaring and foaming and the earth trembling beyond imagination. It's the peace that prompted old Job to say, Yea, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. We're modern folks. How can peace be anything other than wishful thinking? After all, peace be with you are not the words we expect from the lips of the one who has been denied and abandoned only days before by his closest friends. I think those disciples may have gone into hiding partly because of the empty tomb. If he was alive and well, they had some explaining to do. Because they had rejected him. They had left him behind. They had turned their backs on him. They pretended they didn't know him. Why did they leave him? Why did they deny him? How could they? You're my friends. We know that kings who survive insurrections and betrayals are not noted for their mercy. According to the world's way of thinking, the stage has been set for Jesus to get even and to retaliate against all those who conspired against him. Yet Jesus doesn't mention any of that, and we don't even notice that he doesn't. He never points to the blood-stained hill and blames them for anything. Instead, he breathes his peace on them. According to John, Jesus is breathing peace on them constantly. John records it. It's lost on us because we don't get that idea of what it means. It's the same word that God used when God breathed the breath of life into Adam and Adam became a living being. It's the same word we see in Ezekiel when God's breath, remember the old story, brings the dry bones to life. Those disciples, like those dry bones, didn't have a choice. They couldn't help but receive the Spirit because God had breathed on them and the peace was coming on them. Now, those disciples had locked themselves away with good reason. They knew that the powers that be terrorized those who work for truth and goodness and justice. They know that the powers that be crucify love when it takes on a bodily form and ask no question. They know that 
They know that they only understand peace if it's maintained by sword and violence and tanks and bombs. And when a few years in that same locked room, these disciples will see their Jerusalem up, go up in flames thanks to Rome. Just a few decades later, before John's gospel is written down, they'll know the pain of per public persecution, and they'll know the division of the church brought on by different opinions and separatist factions that want to exceed one another. So if there is a peace that comes with the Spirit, it should be a very strong, resilient peace that is greater than the power of the sword. Paul put it this way. He said it's a peace that passes all understanding. We can't even pretend to know where it comes from. And it's not just a polite gesture on Jesus' part. It comes attached to a mission. Jesus says, as I was sent, so I'm sending you with this peace. Sent for peace? Absolutely. You, me, the disciples, all God's people sent for peace. Sent for peace to a world hell-bent on its own destruction. Sent for peace to a world that values guns more than children. Sent to a world that invests billions in planting seeds of war and refuses to invest in gardens of peace. A world that can't let go of its resentment and its hate for those with whom it differs or competes. Well, Larry, is a mission like that even possible? Really? Jesus thought so. And that's what I'm here to tell you this morning. He thought his motley crew, whom he found locked away behind closed doors with their fears, was a great place to start with living out the peace. One of my favorite teachers, Walter Brueggemann, said on occasion, I do not know where you are sent, but I give this word from Jesus, you are sent. And if you want the peace of Jesus, then you must accept the sending of Jesus. Jesus is sending all his disciples, all those baptized in his name, all those who share his life, all to the same place, all to the neighbor whom God loves, all to the neighbor in need. And if we do not go, we forget about his offer of peace. It's a peace, you see, that's wrapped up in the power of forgiveness, and we're not really good with that, except for minor indiscretions or annoyances. He told them if you forgive the sins of any, consider them forgiven. If you want to retain them, they're going to be retained, but if you're a forgiving person, I don't know how many people would want to retain the sins of others and keep them feeling guilty when you alone are the forgiver. The peace that Jesus breathed on them that day was a peace that was shaped by a spirit of forgiveness.
And it's not easy. Forgiveness is never easy. It goes against the grain. To forgive is to become vulnerable to more hurt and more hurt. It, in real life, forgiveness is risky business. And it's a long-term project that sometimes seems to take forever. To live a life of forgiveness is like trying to control the nutgrass in your yard. And I've been there. It takes constant digging and lots of prayer. Yet, friends, that is our calling today by a risen Lord who has appeared among us. As believers, you and I are called to a life that forgives, to the life that serves, to the life that is compassionate, to the life that is full of wasteful, extravagant, freely given love, embarrassingly so. a life that refuses to retaliate for the wrong done to it. It's all about learning that the world's traditional methods of controlling violence only bring about endless waves of death and more destruction, decade after decade, century after century. And without the forgiving peace of the Spirit, the world is going to continue to devour itself and its violence and in its vengeance. See, that's why we know that forgiveness isn't cheap. It demands something of us. We know that wounds so cruelly inflicted by others just aren't easy to ignore. We pass on the pain of our hurt from generation to generation and we keep the bitterness alive and even in search of getting even one day. We do it individually, we do it as cultures. Yet it's the wounded Christ who captured Thomas's imagination and stirred his heart to confess, my Lord and my God. He saw the wounds, friend. He saw the wounds of Christ. The wounds of the one who offers us our best hope, no doubt our only hope to breathe out peace in the world. Those wounds of Christ are the proof that resurrection was something more than mere resuscitation. That the one we call Lord is the one who did indeed suffer the hurt of our violence and has the scars to prove it. Friends, I believe that Thomas needed to see that Jesus wasn't just a God come to earth, magically protected and not just some divine apparition of humanity able to escape real anguish and even death. No, Thomas needed to see those wounds. He needed to see the hurt. He needed to see the evidence of pain. He needed to know that Jesus didn't talk a good talk, but that he had skin in the game. 2,000 years later, thanks to those wounds, you and I can now, like Thomas, that even though we will die because of him, we know that we can be raised. In spite of the wounds we have suffered and still carry. So what about you and me this morning? What are the doors that are locked in our lives? What are the things that we have kept hidden away for fear? What are the things that keep us stuck in the same place? 
Whatever that room is in which you find yourself right now, know this, that the Lord is with you in that closed space of your isolation and your fear. No matter how big or how small, He is breathing peace to you, courage to you, life to you. And that peace, that peace will be the thing that will finally help you sling open those doors and walk out. I guess the question really is for us who are here today on this low Sunday of Easter, am I really a follower of Jesus? It's a good question to ask us every so often. I do it all the time. Somebody asked me at the post office the other day if I was saved. I said, oh, ma'am, many times. You only have to be saved once. I said, not me. Apparently, I have to get saved all the time because I forget. I forget who I am, and I forget my calling, and I forget my purpose of peace in the world. I forget that I really am a follower of Jesus, that I really do have skin in the game. See, now today is the time for you and me to breathe out the peace of Jesus on those around us like we've never done before. It's urgent. Never has the world needed that message so clearly. Never has it been more open to hear it. Now is the time for you and me to risk everything for that peace that can save the world, even if it kills us. Begin now. Resolve today. You have been in this house. You have seen the Lord. You know resurrection is possible. Place yourself between the weak and the violent, between the oppressed and the oppressor. Accept the mission of Christ, determined to forsake the ways of death, and choose the ways of life. And breathe that peace on everybody you come in contact with. It's a tall order, I know. You say, Larry, my world is falling apart. It's going to hell in a handbasket. Friends, it's all about breathing, keep breathing God's peace. Take it in. Give it out. Day after day. Week after week. And do not tire of breathing. So that you will live forever and ever and ever in that spirit of peace. Let's pray. We really are surprised we didn't know we'd meet you here today. It's a little disconcerting. We're a little embarrassed. And yet here you are, and you're breathing on us, for goodness sake. And you keep calling us, we who are so vulnerable and weak and timid and calculating and distrustful, you breathe peace on us. 
we accept that gift. We welcome it into our lives and into our hearts. We dare to put it to action in the things that we do from this day forward. And we do it for Jesus' sake. Even as we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Covenant Presbyterian Church podcast. I invite you to visit our website, covpresatl.org. That's C-O-V-P-R-E-S-A-T-L.org. There you'll find current worship information, links to our live Sunday morning streaming service, and our full archive of recorded services. You'll also find out more about us and how to get in touch. I wish you well in these strange times. God is with us. Grace and peace to you.